The scripture this morning comes from the book of Jonah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 and 10. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim it to the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This is the word of God for the people of God. I had uh, meant to say something earlier. Deloy, you know, we have, we have been uh, praying for you this week. Deloy uh, lost his mother this past week, and so uh, did you want to say something? No, um, I... I watched my mother go. I didn't see her go, but when I got there, I knew, I knew that she was in peace, and she went She went to heaven. Yeah. That's... And uh, it was weird because I was on 495 when my sister called. Uh, Joanne was in the, in the passenger side, and uh, she, Joanne didn't know whether she wanted to tell me or not, but she had passed away while we were on right in the middle of traffic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she said, well, I have to tell you this. She said, just hold on to the steering wheel, okay? And uh, I said, I'm all right. And then I knew, you know, I knew she didn't have to say anything. But uh, I saw her at peace when I got there. And it, it just drained all this feeling that I've had for the last four weeks. And uh, I just knew that uh, God was there with me and her. Yeah. Well, you know, she must have been a pretty special person. She was. Because they say the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> so. Let us uh, turn to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this scripture this morning. Because it's part of the common lectionary, there are Christian churches all around the globe that are reading this text this morning. And there are sermons being preached on the text and a lot of Hearts and minds are being opened to what you've been trying to say to us across the centuries. And if we're real honest, Lord, we're going to find out that this, this story that feels almost like just a children's story that you tell at night before our kids go to bed, we're going to find out that it's, it's a lot more difficult it's a much more scary than we might see on the surface. So we're going to need your help, Lord, in these few moments to hear what you have to say. We're going to need your spirit to talk to ours so that we don't just kind of slough it off for somebody else, but it, it's a message for each one of us here, not a single soul in this worship space cannot benefit from your wisdom and your direction. 
that you're giving us right now. So don't let the preacher's words get in the way of what you want to say to us. Help us to hear your words. Speak to us. Your servants are listening. Amen. You know, I don't know about you, but whenever you hear the word Jonah, you, don't you all just automatically think of, and the whale? I mean, it just seems to, they sort of flow. It's almost like it's his last name, Jonah and the whale. <laughs> um, and what's interesting is the scriptures don't say anything about a whale. There's, uh, the scriptures tell us that there was this great fish that swallowed Jonah. Uh, if, and maybe we think of whales all the time because every coloring book, every uh, cartoon that we've ever seen about Jonah, the movies that have been depicted. If you, you can go up to Sight and Sound Theater. Um, well, I don't think they're showing it now, but I think last year they did Jonah. And they had this great big whale that actually swims out in the, uh, over the audience. Huge, like 18-wheeler-size whale. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's only natural that we just kind of have it in our mind that there's this whale that came and swallowed Jonah. And even when artists paint pictures of Jonah and this fish, even when they call it Jonah and the fish, uh, they still paint the mammal we call whale. Now, all the debate about this fish and whether or not it, uh, it existed, whether or not there is a fish that could swallow a human being, whether it was a great white shark or, or, or a whale or some other kind of kind of swimming thing um, sort of misses the point if that's all we talk about. Because really, the great fish is kind of incidental to the story. It, it's just the mechanism by which God grabs up Jonah and takes him to the place where he was supposed to go in the first place. Really doesn't matter. He could have picked him up by camel or something else. But no, it was by fish. It, it makes the story more interesting, I guess, and fascinating, but it's really not germane to the, to the story at all. You see, Jonah was a, uh, there, there was a Jonah, a, a historical figure known as Jonah, who was a Jewish prophet eight centuries before Jesus. So there really was a, a person named Jonah, and he preached a message of repentance in the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, he was much like John the Baptist who preached a baptism of repentance in the same way Jonah was preaching repentance, calling the people to turn around and turn toward God. Now, the book of Jonah that is named after this historical figure, the, the book of Jonah, is one of the 12 minor prophets in what we call the Old Testament. And the entire book, it's really interesting, the entire book is read in Hebrew every year in synagogues to this very day on Yom Kippur. So obviously, the book of Jonah is important. In fact, Jonah is only one of the 12 minor prophets that is actually named in the Quran. In fact, Muhammad uh, revered Jonah and wrote about him by name. So clearly Jonah has had an influence on many people, 
uh, across the centuries. Now, most modern Protestant scholars believe that this story is not a, a historical fact based on a historical figure, but the story itself, most Protestant scholars believe was a parable that was used in a rabbinic sermon. A rabbi was preaching a sermon and he, and he tells the story like I've often told stories, Phil has told stories along the way. Um, they're sort of stories to, to teach a message or to make a point. And, and you say, well, where do they get that idea? You know, well, for one thing, Nineveh does not exist, did not exist on the sh seashore. <laughs> it, it was in the desert. It was on the Tigris River, on the banks of the Tigris River. And uh, the, the river would not manage to hold a fish large enough to bring Jonah and belch it out on, on the shore. So the, the sense is, that was just kind of a, a part of the story to make it interesting, but uh, it's meant to be a parable. And, and people say, well, you know, I believe in the Bible literally. Well, then read it literally, literally as a parable. <laughs> um, that's not taking it out of the context at all. If anything, it's being true to the scriptures. Another reason that it's good reason to believe that it's more of a parable because of Nineveh itself. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which was the mortal enemy of Israel. So what God was saying to Jonah is, I want you to go to the people you hate the most. And, and I, I was trying to think what would be kind of a comparable uh, nation for us, for Assyria. And maybe it would be North Korea, you know, since they're on the verge of... of, uh, of having nuclear weapons and maybe, maybe the, you know, and they're our enemy, you know, or, or maybe it's Iran. I, I don't know. You, you pick the nation that you think is uh, our greatest enemy. Well, that's what, that's what Assyria would have been to Israel. And so, you know, Nineveh would be the capital of that enemy state. That Nineveh, in fact, lies across the river from modern-day Mosul. You've probably heard of Mosul uh, in Iraq of today. It was a major city at that time. It was a city that uh, existed on the, on the trade route uh, between the Mediterranean Sea and, and the Indian Ocean. It was a thriving merchant center. So it was a huge city. So when God was telling Jonah to go to Nineveh. God was telling Jonah to go to the place that he least wanted to go to. The book of Jonah, you see, is God's way of trying to make the point that God's grace is available to everyone, everyone, even the people we hate the most, even our enemies. So in the very second verse, the of the first chapter of Jonah, God says to Nona, go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come upon, come up before me. Clearly, you know, Jonah would say, you got that. Yeah, they're wicked people. <laughs> you don't want me to go there, Lord. Jonah doesn't want to go. What he'd rather, 
is that God would just send down fire and brimstone and destroy Nineveh. He doesn't want to go there and call on them to repent. They might actually do it, and then God would have to forgive them. You know, no, Lord, I don't know about that. So he gets on a, a boat, and he goes in the other direction. In verse 3 of chapter 1, the scriptures read, Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. Now, the thing about Tarshish is it's a long way in the other direction from Nineveh. You, you know, if this is a, a parable, uh, the, the rabbi could have just simply said he got in a ship and went in the other direction. But no, he was making a point by saying Tarshish because it was about as far in the other direction as he could possibly go. So not only was he going in the opposite direction, but he was getting the you-know-what out of Dodge. He did not want to come anywhere near Nineveh. And of course, you and I know what happens after that. God sends the storm and, and the, everyone on the ship starts calling on their various idols and gods and they have to rouse Jonah from his sleep and they say, You're, we're lacking your God. Come on, you've got to pray. And they cast lots to figure out who's the problem. And Jonah already knows, he, it's me, it's me. Throw me overboard. They, they don't want to do it at first. And then finally they say, okay. And they throw him overboard and, and then the storm ceases. And that's when the great fish arrives, grabs him up, swallows him whole and takes him where he's supposed to go in the first place and belches him out on the shores of Nineveh. He still doesn't want to go there. So God has to remind him why he was sent there. So in verse 2 of chapter 3, God says again, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness had come up before me. So finally, he goes. He enters the city. Now, the scriptures tell us that it's a large city. I, I really like how it's described. It's three days walk across. It, that feels kind of like Australia, you know, it's a walkabout. Three days walkabout. That's how big that city is. It takes three days to walk across the city. It's a huge place. But notice what, what Jonah does. He walks for a full day before he even opens his mouth. It's not like he enters the city and he starts saying, repent, repent, the Lord wants to save you and walking for three days crying out. No, the scriptures tell us he walks for one full day and then he tells them to repent. You almost get the sense that he probably whispered it. You know, hey, in case anybody's listening, God wants you to repent. Because you see, deep down inside, he didn't want the people to change because he wanted them to be punished. Then it happened. Just as he feared, the people repented. Oh, they brought out the sackcloths. They, they all fell on their knees, everybody. Verse 5, chapter 3. And the people of Nineveh believed God, they, and they proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. Jonah was angry. He was angry because he knew that's what God was going to do. He had even gone up on top of a hill to watch the destruction. He was hoping that they would be destroyed. 
But what he feared was they would repent and God would repent of God's anger toward them. Oh, Lord, he cries from that hilltop. Is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. That's chapter 4, verse 2. And that's not the only reason he was angry. He was angry because God had given him a bush up there on that hill while he was waiting for the destruction of the city, and it provided him some shade. But then the bush began to wilt, and it died. And now he was sitting out in the, in the desert sun, getting hot and sweaty, and he got angry at the bush. And God wanted to know why Jonah was so upset about a bush when there were 120,000 people in Nineveh that were on the verge of being destroyed by their own wickedness? Why couldn't he have just a little bit of concern for those people, even a fraction of the concern that he had for the bush? Now, of course, we never learn what happens with Jonah. We don't know if he ever has a change in heart. We don't know if he goes to his death with a kind of bitter and angerness within him, or if he simply learned to love people he didn't like. We simply don't know how the story ends. And maybe, just maybe that's intentional. You see, maybe we are to finish the story. God's path often leads where you don't want to go question is, will you take the road to Nineveh or will you take the road to Tarshish? In the early days of my ministry, I've shared this story before. I, um, as a pastor, I, was, I got a call from a woman who wanted me to perform the, the wedding of, I believe it was her daughter. I was trying to remember if it was her daughter or son. All I know is that uh, she made it clear that I wasn't going to be able to even meet them until days before the, uh, before the wedding. In fact, I wasn't even going to meet the groom until the, the night of the rehearsal. And this was in the early days of my ministry. And I, and I had this notion that, you know, wow, I could really impart some wisdom to help couples uh, survive a long marriage. <laughs> so I really felt like premarital counseling was absolutely uh, critical. And, and, I, and I really struggled. And I said, I, I don't know that I can do this. And and, and she said, you mean you won't marry my, my daughter? And I said, well, I'm not saying I won't. I'm just saying I don't know that I can do it this way. And she hung up the phone on me. And then she, just minutes later, she calls back. And she doesn't even let me say anything. She says, I'm so angry I could bite nails. And then she slams the phone down. Boy, she did not like Pastor Horton, that's for sure. Her husband didn't like me either. And they kind of, for a long time, they hung around the church. And, of course, they never came to worship anymore because they didn't like the preacher and they spread a lot of, a lot of hateful words about me. It was, it was a real dark night of the soul for me in those many, many, many months that passed. Well, the time came that I heard that her husband, um, his brother, passed away and I knew what I needed to do. I knew what I did not want to do, but I knew what I needed to do and where God was calling me, that I was 
to go to his home. And I, and I didn't want to go there, and so I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll wait until I think they're at the funeral home, and while they're at the funeral home, I'll go and I'll leave my card. Then I can say, Lord, I did what you asked me to do. And I even drove around the neighborhood a while, kind of taking my time slowly. In fact, when I got to the house, I even pulled my card out uh, even as I was walking down the the walkway, I figured I'd maybe give two knocks and then I'd leave my card. Well, it only took one knock because then he opened the door and we talked through the, the storm door and then eventually he welcomed me in and, and it, everything changed. And uh, later the next day at the, at the funeral, uh, at the cemetery, they invited me to, to pray over the grave. I knew what they were saying to me. They were, they were saying they had forgiven me and more importantly, what I was saying and what I needed to do was to forgive them. You see, God's path often leads where you don't want to go. But I found that day that the journey is more than worth the pain. When I was a chaplain at Duke, um, a program was offered to families so they would have a place to um, stay if they were out of town and they had a loved one that was in the hospital, uh, a program was being established by the, by the chaplaincy office to make it possible for them to have a place to say it wouldn't be so costly. But there was a catch to this program that had not yet started, but they were getting ready to start it, and we chaplains were being instructed on how we were to offer this to the families. And the catch was that they only had homes for white folks. So we couldn't offer to everyone. We could only offer it to to families that were white. I really struggled with that. And I knew what I needed to do, and I knew where I needed to go. But I didn't want to go there. But I went. I went into the, the head of the chaplain's program, into his office, And I told him, I said, I can't do this. I I cannot offer a program to only some, especially on the basis of race. if If I can't offer to everyone, I just cannot do that. And he said, yes, you can, and you will. And, and he said, you know, we just don't have the homes to offer to everyone and we're going to do what we can. And I said, you, you don't open a hospital when you just have the emergency room. You, you wait until you have the whole hospital, you know. You, you, you don't just start when you got part of it. You do it all or you don't do it at all. And, and he said, you will do what you are called upon to do if you want to remain in this program. And I, I left his office thinking I, there were probably not many more days that I was going to be in, in that program. Well, eventually the, the program was instituted but it was offered to everyone. Now, did I have an influence on that? I don't know. I have no idea. It it really doesn't matter. All I know is that day when I had to go into his office, it was one of those hard, hard decisions that I had to make, but I knew I needed to make it. God's path often leads where you don't want to go. Well, a little more than a week ago, some very troubling words were reported out of the White House. Um, words that disparaged a whole continent of people and, and some folks that we have a, 
a very important ministry with in Haiti. Uh, and those disparaging words were, were shared largely because of the color of their skin. And the bishops of the United Methodist Church felt they could not be silent, that, um, especially since the people that were being disparaged uh, represent really the, the fastest growing segment of our denomination. I mean, you know, Christ is moving on the African continent in wonderful ways. The bishops knew that any comment that they would make would be perceived by some to be political and partisan, but they also knew that silence would be complicit. They knew they could not remain silent. You see, God was leading them where they knew they needed to go, but where I would not at all doubt that there were some on the Council of Bishops that did not want to go there as much as they knew they needed to go there. So on the eve of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, the Council of Bishops wrote a letter for, for us to hear, but really even beyond us for, for all to hear. And I'd like to read this letter. There will be copies available for you if you would like them as you exit today, if you'd like to take a copy home or several copies to share. These are the words of our bishops. We are appalled by the offensive, disgusting words attributed to President Donald Trump, who is said to have referred to immigrants from African countries and Haiti and the countries themselves in an insulting and derogative manner. According to various media accounts, President Trump made the remarks during a White House discussion with lawmakers on immigration. As reported, President Trump's words are not only offensive and harmful, they're racist. We call upon all Christians, especially United Methodists, to condemn this characterization and further call on President Trump to apologize. As United Methodists, we cherish our brothers and sisters from all parts of the world, and we believe that God loves all creation regardless of where they live or where they come from. As leaders of our global United Methodist Church, we're sickened by such uncouth language from the leader of a nation that was founded by immigrants and serves as a beacon to the world's huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Thousands of our clergy, laity, and other highly skilled, productive citizens are from places President Trump has defamed with his comments. The fact that he also insists the United States should consider more immigrants from Europe and Asia demonstrates the racist character of his comments. This is a direct contradiction of God's love for all people. Further, these comments on the eve of celebrating Martin Luther King Day belies Dr. King's witness in the United States' ongoing battle against racism. We just celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ, whose parents during his infancy had to flee to Africa to escape from the wrath of King Herod. Millions of immigrants across the globe are running away from such despicable and life-threatening events. Hence, we have the Christian duty to be supportive of them as they flee 
political, cultural, and social dangers in their native homes. We will not stand by and allow our brothers and sisters to be maligned in such a crude manner. We call on all United Methodists, all people of faith, and the political leadership of the United States to speak up and speak against such demeaning and racist comments. Christ reminds us that it is by love that we will know that we are Christians. Let's demonstrate that love for all of God's people by saying no to racism, no to discrimination, and no to bigotry. Signed by Bishop Bruce O., President of the Council of Bishops. God's path often leads where you don't want to go. Where is God leading you? To someone of a different color, a different nationality, maybe a person of a different political party or a theological position that's different from yours. Maybe God is leading you to someone with a different sexual orientation, maybe to people that you can't stand and, and you might have good reasons to. You see, Jonah had good reasons to hate the Ninevites. They were his enemies. Is God leading you to someone with whom you simply disagree? To someone who has hurt you or betrayed you or turned against you? Where is your Nineveh? Where is that place in your life that you are as justified as Jonah was to go in the opposite direction? God's path often leads where you don't want to go. Let us pray. Lord, forgive us. We're just human. We're just like Jonah. And there are some folks that we have a hard time loving, but they're your children. So help us, Lord, to go where they are and to share with them your love. Amen.